0: I should like to call attention once more to those that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, reading from verse 25 to the end of the chapter Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the Church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, in considering this great statement we have seen that there are two main themes. One is the theme of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Church, and the other is the relationship between the husband and the wife. And the Apostle's teaching is that we can only truly understand the relationship of husband and wife as we understand that great doctrine of Christ and the Church. Therefore, we have first been considering the doctrine of Christ and the Church, And having done so, we are now in a position to begin our application of that particularly to the husbands, though, as you notice, the apostle is careful at the end to bring in again the whole question from the aspect and the standpoint of the wife. Well now, the theme, of course, is that which is expressed by this soul. Even so, husbands, love your wives even as. And then at the end, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. In other words, he is working out this comparison which he has unfolded before us of the relationship of Christ to the church in terms of the relationship of the husband to the wife. Now as we come to the application... It seems to me the best way of doing so is to divide it into two main sections. The first is that clearly there are certain general principles taught here with respect to husbands and their wives. And then, having laid down the general principles, we can move on to the detailed, practical application of the principles to the concrete situation. Now, the general principles as I see them are these, that first... We must realize, in connection with marriage, as indeed with everything else in the Christian life, as indeed with the whole of life, that the secret of success is to think and to understand. That is something which is surely obvious on the very surface of the passage. Nothing happens automatically in the Christian life. Now that, to me, is a very profound principle because I believe that most of our troubles arise from the fact that we tend to assume that they do happen automatically. We will persist in holding on to that notion of regeneration that it really means this. That happened, and, well, the rest of the story is quite simple. They all lived happily ever afterwards. But, of course, we know that that isn't true. There are problems in the Christian life, and it is because many don't realize that it isn't something that works automatically, that they get into troubles and into difficulties. And the antidote to that is, of course, to think, to have understanding, and to reason the thing out and through. Now, the world doesn't do that. That is, the real trouble with the world, ultimately, the whole trouble with the world is that it doesn't think. If only people thought most of the problems would be solved. Take this problem of war, for instance. It is something which is inherently ridiculous. It is insane. Well, why do people fight, you say? Well, the answer is because they don't think. They act instinctively. They are governed by some primitive instincts. Desire and greed and anger and so on. And they hit before they think. If only they all stopped, well, there would be no more war. Now, the tragedy of the humanist is, of course, that he thinks, therefore, that all you have to do is to tell people to think, but as long as they're sinners, they won't think. These elemental forces are so much stronger than the rational forces, so that man in sin is always irrational. Now, the point I'm making is that even when we become Christians, we still need to enforce this self-same principle. The Christian even doesn't think automatically. He's got to be taught to think. Hence these New Testament epistles. Why do you think they were ever written? If a man who becomes a Christian automatically does the right things, why did the apostles ever have to write these epistles? Or if you can receive your sanctification as one act, one blessing, why were these epistles ever written? Here they are, full of reason, full of argument, full of demonstration, full of analogies and comparisons. Why? Well, in order to teach us how to think in order to teach us how to work these things out and how to have understanding. Now, this is very essential, as the apostle shows, in connection with this whole subject of marriage. The world, of course, views marriage like this. It, first of all, takes certain great things for granted. It relies upon what it calls love. It relies upon feeling. People say they fall in love with one another, on the strength of that they get married. They don't stop to think and to ask questions, that's a very exceptional thing for them to do. They're moved and animated and carried away by this feeling, everything's going to be all right, this, this is bound to last, this can never fail, this marvelous thing which is idealized and lyricized, as you know, and sang about and the drama's exalted, oh, it's so wonderful, it can never fail, and then, of course, you get your newspapers and you read your reports and you find that it does fail. And why does it fail? Well, the answer is, I say, that it fails because they've never thought the thing through. And therefore it cannot stand up to the tests and the stresses and the strains that must inevitably come as life is lived from day to day with its weary round and its physical tiredness and all the many other things that produce difficulties. Now, it is because such people have never thought the thing through that they've got nothing to fall back upon. They've acted on a feeling, on a kind of impulse. They've acted emotionally. The mind doesn't come in. And, as I say, when they're confronted by difficulties, they have no arguments to fall back upon. They don't know what to do. The whole thing seems to have gone, and so they back out of it. They have their divorce immediately and then repeat the same process, probably. Now, that is the whole cause of the trouble. It's, it's an absence of understanding. It's a lack of thought. Now, when you come to the Christian standpoint, the main difference is this. That the Christian is exhorted to think and to understand so that he will have reason. That's the whole meaning, I say, of this teaching which is provided for us. We are left without excuse. Now, the world has no such teaching, but we are no longer in that position. So the first thing that we are reminded of by this paragraph is that we must think, and we are even told how to do it, and it is put before us in detail. There's my first principle. The second is this, that as Christians, our conception of marriage must be positive. It must always be a positive conception. I mean something like this. The danger is, of course, that we should think of marriage amongst Christians as just essentially marriage as it is with everybody else. The only difference being that the two people here happen to be Christians, whereas the others were not. Now, if that's our conception of marriage still, well, then we have considered this great paragraph entirely in vain. Christian marriage, the Christian view of marriage, is something that is essentially different from the other. And that's the thing, surely, which must have been emerging as we have gone on from Sunday to Sunday. So the position is not that here are two people getting married and there are two other people who are getting married. What's the difference? Ah, the first two were not Christians, these two are Christians. Marriage, of course, is exactly the same. No, it isn't. It is essentially different. Here we get a view of marriage which is not possible anywhere else at all. It is lifted up to this whole ideal position of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Church. So that the Christian's attitude towards marriage is always this positive one. He should always be straining after this ideal. The Christian view, I say, mustn't be negative. In the sense that, uh, well, there are certain different factors which have come in, and therefore this marriage ought to hold where the other one is not likely to do so. That's purely negative then. It isn't merely that we avoid certain things that are true of the others. No, no, we must have this ideal, positive conception of marriage. It is something that we must always think of in terms of the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Church. And therefore, we see that we have to go on thinking about it. We have to go on testing ourselves constantly By asking that question, well, is my married life really corresponding to that? Is it manifesting that? Is it being governed by that? Now, in other words, in in the Christian position, you don't stop thinking about these things when you've been married a few months. You go on thinking and you think more and more. And the more Christian you become and the more you grow in grace, the more you think of your marriage. And the more you are concerned that it should conform to this heavenly pattern, to this glorious ideal of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Church. This is a matter which is difficult to put into words. What I'm trying to convey is this, that the great difference between the marriage of Christians and the marriage of non-Christians should be that in the case of the Christians, the thing becomes progressively more wonderful, more glorious, as it sees and attains to the ideal increasingly. We all surely see the significance of that as we apply it to what is so commonly true of marriage, not only amongst non-Christians, but alas, amongst Christians also. But here is a conception that goes on growing and developing and increasing. Then my third and last general principle is this one, and it's come out of course in the whole of the exposition that the real cause of failure ultimately in marriage always is self. Self. And the various manifestations of self. Of course, that is the cause of trouble everywhere and in every realm. Self and selfishness are the greatest disrupting forces in the world this morning. All the major problems confronting The world, whether you look at it from the standpoint of nations and statesmen, or from the standpoint of industry and social conditions, or whatsoever standpoint, all these troubles ultimately come back to self. My rights, what I want, and who is he, or who is she, you see, it's self, with its hurried manifestations, that always leads to the trouble. And of course, it inevitably leads to trouble. Because uh, if you have two selves, well, there's bound to be a clash. Self always wants everything for itself. All right, that's true of me, but it's equally true of the other self. You've got two autonomous powers here, and each is concerned only about himself or herself. Well, a clash is inevitable. And that is why you get clashes at every level. From two people, right up to great communities and empires and nations, and indeed the world divided into two sections. Now, the whole teaching here is designed to show us how to avoid the calamities that result from self. You see, that is why I was at great pains to emphasize verse 21 before we began to consider this whole question of marriage. It's the key to the the entire paragraph submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's the basic principle. That is what is to be true of all members of the Christian church. Whether married or unmarried, we are all to be submitting ourselves one to the other in the fear of Christ. And then, of course, the apostle comes to apply that to this position of man and woman, husband and wife. But in this particular section we are dealing with, he has made that, I would imagine, so plain and clear that surely no one can miss it. What is the essential thing about marriage? Well, he says it's this, unity. These two, these twain, shall become one flesh. He says you must stop thinking of them as two. They're one. Therefore, any tendency to assert self immediately is breaking the fundamental conception of marriage. Now, you can, we can see this principle operating everywhere else. He's put it there in general in verse 21. If only we remember this in all cases where we are two separate individuals, master and servant, or parents and children, or two states, there we are to remember it. But here, says the apostle, there should be no question of it. Because here, to think of these two as two, is denying the very fundamental principle of marriage, which is that they're one. These two shall be one flesh. The bride, the wife, is the body of the husband, even as the church is the body of Christ, and so on. So that here we have above everywhere else the final denunciation of self and all its horrid assertions. And we are shown the one and only way whereby we can finally be delivered from that. Well, now, there are three big general principles that have come out very clearly as we have been considering the doctrine of uh, the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Church. Now, then, the husband is to be governed by those principles. And Now, how does this work itself out in practice? The first uh, uh, statement which I find is that the husband, therefore, must realize that his wife is a part of himself. Now, he's got to realize that. He's got to understand that. He won't feel that instinctively. He's got to be taught that. And the Bible teaches him that Old Testament and New, as we've seen. In other words, uh, we have to grasp this principle, that uh, husband and wife are not two, they are one. That keeps on being repeated here. Uh, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. These two shall be made one flesh. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's all true of our relationship to the Lord. It's true in this other relationship. Therefore, I would put it like this that it is not sufficient even for us to regard uh, our wives as partners. They are partners, but they're more than partners. You can have two men in business who are partners, but that, that's not the analogy. The analogy goes higher than that. It isn't a question of partnership, though it includes that. There is another phrase that is often used, at least used to be often used, which puts it so much better. And it seems to me that it's an unconscious uh, Repetition of Christian teaching by large numbers of people. Men refer to their wives as my better half. Now that's exactly right. That is precisely right. She's not a partner. She is the other half of the men. These twain shall be one flesh. My better half. Now the very word half puts the whole case which the apostle elaborates here. You're not dealing with two units, two entities. No, no, you're dealing with two halves of one. These twain shall be one flesh. therefore, in the light of that, the husband must no longer think singly or individually. The thing is quite impossible, says the apostle, because here it is: he that loveth his wife loveth himself. He is in a sense not loving somebody else, he is loving himself. That is the difference that marriage makes. So that when you come to the practical level, we put it like this. All this man's thinking must include his wife also. He must never think of himself in isolation or in detachment. The moment he does that, he's broken the fundamental thing about marriage. There it is, you see, on the intellectual and the spiritual level. Everybody sees it when it happens on the physical level. But the real damage is done there away back at the intellectual and the spiritual level. The moment a man thinks of himself in isolation, he's broken the marriage in a sense. He has no right to do that. There is a sense in which he cannot do that. Because the wife is a part of himself. And if he does that, he's going to hurt the wife. There's going to be damage. It's a damage in which he himself will be involved. Because she is a part of him. He is therefore acting even against himself, did he but realize it. His thinking, therefore, I say, must never be personal, in the sense of individualistic. He is only the half, and what he does involves of necessity the other half. The same applies to his desires. He must never have any desires for himself alone. He is no longer one man, he is no longer free in that sense. His wife is involved in all his desires, and it is his business to see that he is conscious of that. He must always be thinking about this. He must never think of his wife, in other words, as an addition. Still less, I'm sorry that I have to use such an expression, as an encumbrance, but there are so many who do. In other words, to sum it all up, you see, this is again a great indication that a man must never be selfish. Neither must the wife, of course. Everything applies on the other side. But here we are dealing particularly with husbands. We've already seen that the wife submits herself there. She's done that. The same thing. This is the husband's side of this so that he must deliberately remind himself constantly of what is true of him in this married state. And it must govern and control all his thinking, all his wishing, all his desiring, indeed the totality of his life and of his activity. But now we can go further and even put this more strongly. There it is there, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. But we remember that the apostle in describing the relationship between the Lord and the church, has as used the analogy of the body. So, he says in verse 28, first half, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Then he elaborates it in verse 29. For no man, he says, ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Well, now here is the teaching, that we not only have to realize that the husband and wife are one, but the husband must realize that the wife is actually a part of himself. This analogy of the body, a man's attitude, says the apostle here, to his wife should be his attitude, as it were, to his body. This is an analogy, and yet it's more than an analogy. Now, we've already gone into that as it's taught at the end of Genesis chapter 2, how the woman was originally taken out of the men, and there we have the proof of the fact that she is a part of the men, and that describes to us the relationship of the unity. Now, the man is therefore told this, husbands, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, that little word, as, is a very important and a very vital one, because we can misunderstand it. He doesn't say this, so ought men to love their wives in the same way as they love their bodies. That isn't the meaning. The meaning is this, so ought men to love their wives because they are their own bodies. A man loves his wife as his body. That's what he's saying. Not as he loves his body, so must he love his wife. No, no. A man must love his wife as his body. As a part of him. As Eve was a part of Adam, as she was taken out of his sight, so the wife is to the man still. Because she is a part of him. And I'm impressing this, of course, for the reason that the apostle clearly did so, which is this is to show that there is in this sense this element of indissolubility about marriage. Which, as I understand the biblical teaching, can only be broken by adultery. But what we are concerned about here is to say this. That the apostle puts it in this form in order that a man may see that he cannot detach himself from his wife. You can't detach yourself from your body, so you can't detach yourself from your wife. She's a part of you, says the apostle. Now, remember that always. You cannot live in isolation. You cannot live in detachment. So then, if you realize that, there'll be no danger of your thinking in detachment. No danger of your wishing and willing and desiring in detachment. Still less can there ever be any antagonism or hatred. You notice how he puts it. No man, he says, to ridicule the the thing. No man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord. So any element of hatred between husband and wife, well, it's sure madness. It just shows that the man has no conception of what marriage means at all. No man ever hated his own flesh, but his wife is his own flesh. She is his body. He is to love his wife as his own body. Very well. What does this lead to in practice? And here I come to very detailed teaching, which is needed by everybody, Christian people as well as others. God knows we all have failed, we all have sinned, by failing to understand this teaching and then applying it in detail. The principle is that the wife is, as it were, the body of the man. As what his body is to his personality, his wife should be to him. So here, you see, is the Apostle's detailed teaching. How is a man to treat his wife? Let me give you some negatives first. He is not to abuse her. It is possible for a man to abuse his body, isn't it? And many men do abuse their bodies by eating too much, by drinking too much, and in various other ways. That is, to abuse the body, to maltreat it, to be unkind to it. Now, says the apostle, a man who does that is a fool, because if a man maltreats his body and abuses it, he himself is going to suffer. You can't detach yourself from your body. And if you think you can and abuse your body, you'll be the one to suffer. Your mind will suffer. Your heart will suffer. The whole of your life will suffer. You may say, I don't care about the body. I'm living a life of the intellect. Well, you go on doing that and you'll soon find that you won't have the intellect you once had. You won't be able to think as you did. You abuse your body. You are the one who's going to suffer. Not only the body, you'll suffer as well. Well, it's exactly the same in the married relationship. If a man abuses his wife, he'll suffer as well as the wife. But the apostle says the thing should be unthinkable. And if a man does abuse his wife, there's going to be a breakdown. Not only in the wife, but also in the man, and in the relationship between the two. And it is the thing that is happening so commonly round and about us. I needn't stay with this, surely. It should be unthinkable that a Christian man should abuse his wife. But let me come to something else. Not only should he not abuse her in the second place, he shouldn't neglect her. Coming back again to the analogy of the body, you see, a man can neglect his body. It often happens. And again, it always leads to trouble. Short of abusing the body, neglect of the body is a bad thing. It is a foolish thing. It is a wrong thing. Man has been so constituted that he is body, mind, and spirit. And the three things are in relationship to one another. God knows we are well aware of this. The frailty of the body. If I've got laryngitis, I can't preach, though I may want to. I may be brimful of ideas and of a desire, but if if my throat is bad, I can't speak. And it's over the whole of the body. If you neglect the body, you will suffer for it. Many a man has done that. Many a scholar has done that. And through neglect of body, his work has had to suffer. Why? Well, because of this essential unity between these parts of our personality. Now it's exactly the same in this married relationship, says the apostle. How much trouble, I wonder, is caused in the realm of marriage simply because of neglect. Why, during this very last week, you've probably read evidence in the paper Medical men have reported that large numbers of wives today have been driven to excessive chain smoking. Why? Simply because they've been neglected by their husbands. The husbands spend their nights out at sports or in their public house or playing games with their men friends, and the poor wife is just left at home with the children and the work and The husband just comes home at night in time just to go to bed and to sleep and gets up and goes out in the morning. Neglect of the wife is leading to these nervous conditions that are manifesting themselves in this excessive smoking and things of that kind. It's a terrible thing that. That a man should get married and then proceed to neglect his wife. In other words, here is a man who's got married but who still, in essential matters, goes on living as if he was still a bachelor. He's still living his own detached life. He still spends his time with his men friends. Now, I could elaborate this very easily, but um, I take it that it is unnecessary. But I have a feeling that I detect a tendency, even in Christian circles and even in evangelical circles, to forget this particular point. A man no longer acts as if he were a single man. His wife should be involved in everything. Only this last week I received an invitation to a social occasion, if you please, from an evangelical organization. A social occasion. But the invitation was addressed to me only and not to my wife. I automatically refused it. And I always do. But you see, there is an evangelical organization that clearly isn't thinking clearly about these matters. I venture to lay it down that a Christian man should not accept an invitation on a social occasion without his wife. There is irreparable damage done to marriages because men meet alone in their clubs without their wives. I think it's wrong. I think it's a denial of this principle. Man and wife should do things together. Of course, the man in his business has to be alone, and there are certain other occasions when he has to be alone. But if it's a social occasion, I say, if it is something into the wife, into which the wife c- shall come, can come, she should come. And it is the business of the husband to see to it that she does come. And therefore I suggest to all Christian husbands that they automatically refuse every invitation which comes to them alone and does not include their wives. But there is another aspect of this that at times causes me grave concern. I am constantly hearing of what has sometimes been called evangelical widows. What does that mean? It means this. It means that the husband of that particular type of woman is a man who's out somewhere or another every night, at some meeting or other. Of course, he says he's doing such a lot of good Christian work, but he seems to forget that he's a married man. Now, there is another extreme, I know, the sort of man who does nothing, but who just in indolence and laziness, spends all his time at home. Both extremes are wrong, always. I'm condemning this particular extreme at the moment. The men who are so busy with Christian work, I have known cases of this. I was told of one only about a fortnight ago in the north of England, of a man who was out speaking at meetings, organizing this and that every night. And the man told me that he'd been intending to do the same thing, but that suddenly he'd been arrested when he had met the wife of this particular man about whom everybody was talking. He said, the poor little woman looked like a slave. She looked exhausted and weary and tired and neglected and unhappy and ill in her heart. Now, that's a terrible sin. Though it's done in the name of active Christian work, a man cannot contract out of his married relationship like this. The wife is in the relationship of the body, I say. And therefore, Christian husbands must examine themselves in this matter. The home is not a mere dormitory where a man goes home to sleep. No, no, there is this active, ideal, positive thing, and we must ever be holding it in the forefront of our minds. A man, therefore, must seek wisdom from God to know how to divide himself up in this respect. But I care not what a man is. If he is a married man, he mustn't behave as a single man, even in connection with Christian work, because he is denying the very teaching of the gospel which he claims to be preaching. There can be untold selfishness, just at that point, which is inevitably, I feel, always the result of nothing worse than thoughtlessness. But thoughtlessness always leads to selfishness. So I move on to my third principle, which is this, my third practical outworking. The husband, I say, must not abuse his wife, he mustn't neglect his wife. Thirdly, he must not even take her for granted. The positive notion must always be there. A man's wife is not just his housekeeper. There is this positive element. Very well, then, how can I bring it out? Well, let me take the apostle's own terms. He puts it like this. So, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but what? Well, nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church, you remember when we looked at that, we were amazed and staggered at the way in which the Lord nourishes and cherishes us. Yes, but that's the way a husband is going to behave towards his wife. Nourisheth and cherisheth. Now, you can't do this again without thinking, you see. As you have to do this with your body, the analogy is a man doesn't hate his own body, but he he nourishes his body, he cherishes his body. How does he do it? Well, let's divide it up simply like this. First of all, the question of diet, food. A man's got to think about his diet, about his food. He's got to take sufficient nourishment. He's got to take it regularly and so on. Now, work out all that in terms of husband and wife. The man should be thinking of what will help his wife, what will strengthen his wife. And you and I, as we take our food, we don't only think in terms of calories or protein, fat, and carbohydrate. We're not purely scientific, are we? Another element comes into this question of food. What do I like? What appeals to my palate? What gives me pleasure? So ought the husband to treat his wife. He should be thinking of what pleases her, what gives her pleasure, what she likes, what she enjoys. Of course, before he got married, he was doing nothing else. But then he gets married and he stops doing it. Isn't that the difficulty? Very well, says the apostle, you don't stop. You go on thinking. And as you're a Christian, you make yourself think. And it becomes more and more, not less and less. That's his argument. Are we not all condemned this morning? But this is the apostolic teaching, the New Testament teaching. Diet, considering her whole personality and her soul, there has got to be this active thought about the development of the wife and her life in this amazing relationship which God himself has ordained. Secondly, the question of exercise. The analogy is the body, you see. Food, then exercise. Exercise to the body is essential. Exercise is essential in the married relationship. What does that mean? Well, you know, it can mean a simpler thing as this. Just talking. Alas, I've known trouble in marriages so often simply because of an absence of talk. Oh, we all know how much there is to be said. A man's tired. He's been in his work or his office all day and he comes home Weary and tired, yes, but the same thing is all true about his wife. And whether we feel like it or not, we must talk. The wife needs exercise in this sense. Tell her about your business, about your worries, about her affairs. Bring her into it. She is your body. She is a part of you. Allow her to speak concerning it. Consult her. Let her bring her understanding to bear. She's a part of your life. Bring her into the, the whole of your life. Make yourself talk. In other words, one has to think. I'm saying once more that I know all the excuses and how difficult it often is, but let me put it to you like this. I think it's a fair argument. This man was equally tired and working equally hard before he got married. But in the days before marriage, whatever he'd been doing, he was most anxious to talk to his wife and to bring her into everything. Why should that stop when they get married? It shouldn't, says the apostle. The wife is one. Look at her as your body. Well, therefore, remember this element of exercise. Bring her into your life deliberately. It'll be wonderful for her, for her development. It'll also be good for you yourself, because the whole marriage will grow and develop as you do so. And that brings me to my third point, which is the element of protection. Here is this body, it needs food, it needs exercise. Yes, but uh, every man has got to learn to understand his own body. And uh, the apostle works out the argument. You have noticed that Peter puts it like this. He tells the men to remember that his wife is the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, it means this. These bodies of ours are subject to certain things. We're all different, you see, even in a physical sense. And some of us are subject perhaps to colds or to chills. It doesn't seem to worry the other men, but some of us are so constituted that we have these minor differences and we are subject to these uh, odd uh, infections and colds and these various things that come to try us. Now, what does a wise man do? Well, he takes care about that. He puts on a heavy overcoat in winter. He may put on a scarf. He doesn't do certain things. He is protecting himself and his weak constitution against some of these hazards that come to meet us in life. So ought men to love their wives. Have you discovered that your wife has got some peculiar temperamental weakness? Have you discovered that she's got certain characteristics? And are you just irritated by them? And are you just annoyed by them? Is she nervous and apprehensive, or is she too outspoken? doesn't matter which it is, nor on which side. She has certain characteristics, which in a sense are weaknesses. What's your reaction to them? Are you irritated? Are you annoyed? Do you tend to condemn them and to dismiss them? Do what you do with your body, says the apostle. Protect her against them. Help her to overcome them. Guard her against them. If your wife is given like this to this worrying temperament, well, save her from there. Protect her. Do everything you can to safeguard the weaknesses and the infirmities and the frailties. As you do it for your body, do it for your wife. Then, of course, there are great infections that come. Waves of influenza, fevers, things that kill people by the thousand. Ah, and they come in the married life. Trials, troubles, tribulations, problems. Which are going to test to the very limit and to the utmost. And what do we do about these? Well, what do you do with your body when you get this kind of illness? When you get this attack of influenza with a raging temperature, what do you do? Well, you put yourself to bed. And you take your hot water bottle and you give yourself the appropriate diet. You do everything you can to treat the fever, this acute thing. So ought men to love their wives, even as their own bodies. If there is some peculiar exceptional trial or anxiety or problem or something that is testing to the uttermost limit, then I say the husband is to go out of his way in order to protect his wife and help her and aid her. She is the weaker vessel. And that includes my last point, which was illness. You try to protect your body against infections. You have your inoculations. Well, apply all that in the married state. Do everything you can to build up the resistance, to prepare your wife to face the hazards of life. You've got to build her up, don't you? Do everything, as it were, but build her up that she will be able to also, so that if you're taken away by death, she's not left stranded. We've got to think these things out. Think them ahead. Build up the resistance. And if the illness comes, oh, take extra care. Give the appropriate medicaments. Go out of your way to do these extra things which will produce a restoration of health and vigor and of happiness. Well, there I'm afraid we've got to leave it for this morning. But there is the one big principle at that I was anxious to deal with. A man is to love his wife even as, because she is, his own body. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. But nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the body.
1: Husbands,
0: love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Amen.